Good morning to you all. I am Jamie. I'm one of the pastors here. It is my honor and my privilege to invite you to point your Bibles to the Gospel of Luke, chapter 9. Luke, chapter 9. I will apologize to you now if I sound a little nasally, so I'm getting over a bit of a head cold. Uh, Just thank God that I'm not singing the sermon this morning. Um, That would not be good for anyone. Um, Luke chapter 9, we're going to pick up where we left off last week, verse 51. I'm going to read to the end of the chapter and ask for the Lord's help on our time together this morning. And then we will get to work, working our way through these verses. Should be around 45 minutes or so. Luke chapter 9, let's read from verse 51 down to the end of the chapter. This is the word of the Lord. When the days drew near for Jesus to be taken up, he set his face to go to Jerusalem. And he sent messengers ahead of him who went and entered a village of the Samaritans to make preparations for him. But the people did not receive him because his face was set toward Jerusalem. When his disciples James and John saw it, they said, Lord, do you want us to tell fire to come down from heaven and consume them? But he turned and rebuked them, and they went on to another village. As they were going along the road, someone said to him, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said to him, Foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. To another he said, follow me. But he said, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. And Jesus said to him, leave the dead to bury their own dead. But as for you, go and proclaim the kingdom of God. Yet another said, I will follow you, Lord, but let me first say farewell to those at my home. Jesus said to him, no one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. Would you pray together? Father, we come to you now and ask kindly that you would show your kindness to us and that you would grant to us understanding about this text. These are, well, they're hard words, Lord. And so we ask that you would send us your Holy Spirit again and grant to us understanding that these words be words of eternal life and bring forth fruit to the praise of the glory of the grace of God. Do this for Jesus' sake, we ask. And all God's people said, amen. Being a Christian is simple, but it is not easy. The cost of following Jesus is high. The Bible likens the Christian life to a pilgrimage. Pilgrim's life is a hard life. A journey as a pilgrim is attended with toil and 
hardship and fatigue. The road is narrow and goes through dangerous places over foreign soil, winding its way to the celestial city. Christians are pilgrims. And you know the thing about a pilgrim is, a a pilgrim doesn't make a pilgrimage through his own hometown, through his own homeland. We are strangers here, aliens. The Lord told His disciples, you are not of this world. I chose you out of this world, therefore the world hates you. We are outsiders. Christian, you will be rejected and persecuted. You will be misunderstood and maligned. At your core, your priorities and your goals, your hopes and your dreams, your joys and your pleasures are fundamentally different than those in the world around you. Dear pilgrim on this road, you should know, you will always be nagged by this constant sense that this is not your home. I remember having a conversation with a friend of mine who had spent years of his life on the mission field. And I asked him where his children call home. And you know, with tears in his eyes, he told me, I don't know. They had spent a a good portion of their life in the mission field, and so home was no place, really. And on that point, His girls understood something profound about the Christian life. That this world offers little sense of home. But we are sojourners. We are pilgrims. In temporary dress. In temporary homes. On our way to the better country. To the city whose builder and designer is God to the place prepared for us from before the foundation of the world. But you see, that's just it, isn't it? As pilgrims, we have a destination. We have a journey to be sure, but we have a destination. There is suffering, but there is also sweetness. There is sorrow, but this is always swallowed up ultimately by rejoicing. And the Christian pilgrimage is not just a path that we take, it is a person that we follow. Oh, the path may be difficult, but the person is wonderful. And this is my hope this morning, that by seeing the beauty and the worth of Jesus Christ, your hearts will erupt, and that you'll give everything to Him. And you'll put everything in your life beneath Him. And satisfied by deep joy, you will follow Him wherever He goes. Here's the big idea this morning. It's very simple. Following Jesus Christ costs everything. But He is infinitely worth it. Following Jesus costs everything.
but he is infinitely worth it. Four points to guide us through this passage together. First, following Christ causes rejection. Following Christ causes rejection. Second, following Christ creates displacement. That following Christ creates displacement. Thirdly, following Christ creates tension. Following Christ creates tension. And then finally, following Christ costs everything, but gains everything. That following Christ will cost everything, but I promise it gains everything. Let's have a look again at verses 51 to 56. Here we will see that following Christ causes rejection. Let's read it together again. When the days drew near for Jesus to be taken up, probably a reference to his ascension, he set his face to go to Jerusalem. And he sent messengers ahead of him who went and entered a village of the Samaritans to make preparations for him. The people didn't receive him because his face was set toward Jerusalem. And when the disciples James and John saw this, they said, Lord, do you want us to tell fire to come down from heaven and consume them? But Jesus turned and rebuked them, and they went on to another village. Now, now a bit of a textual note here about verse 51. Luke 9, 51 marks a transition in the gospel of Luke. Uh, This probably should have been where chapter 10 begins, but uh, I, I don't know if you know this or not, but look, Luke did not put the chapter divisions in there. Chapter divisions in the Bible were added much later, centuries later, by some fellow named Steve. And usually Steve does a good job and puts them in the right places. Here, not so much. We're about six months from the cross, and Luke's gospel slows way down. The tone of the gospel changes at this point. You see, chapters 1 through 9 were all about Jesus coming to his people. Chapters 10 through 19 are all about Jesus going to Jerusalem. And then at the end of 19, we see Luke's gospel slow down even more as he focuses the rest of the gospel really on one week of Jesus' life, Holy Week, where he will die on the cross, where he will be resurrected and eventually send into heaven. Luke notes this transition in his gospel by the mention of time. He says, the days drew near for Jesus to be taken up. And as I said earlier, I think this is probably a reference to his ascension back into heaven, which happens after his death and resurrection. But note that Luke says Jesus set his face to go to Jerusalem. The phrase here means that Jesus is resolute in his commitment to go to Jerusalem. There's no turning back for him. There's no looking back for him. For the rest of Luke's gospel, the Lord has one mind, and that is set on going to Jerusalem and doing what he came to do in Jerusalem. And now, of course, Jesus knows what awaits him in Jerusalem. Rejection. Suffering. The suffering of the judgment of God against sinners. But he is the servant of the Lord that Isaiah foretold 700 years before who set his face like flint to do his father's will. 
in Jerusalem. The Lord would be nailed to a Roman cross, and the wrath of God would be poured out on Him, and He would die to save sinners from their sin. This is the reason Jesus came, and this is the work to which He sets His face. He is resolved to this, and He sends messengers ahead of Him to make preparations for Him passing through, and they come to a village of the Samaritans. And the Samaritans hear that this Jewish Messiah is passing through on His way to Jerusalem, and they reject Him. They will not receive Him. Now, a little bit of history is helpful here. The Jews and the Samaritans had a beef. For 900 years, they had a beef. So, a long, long, long time before Jesus is born, the 12 tribes of Israel get into a fight about who's going to be in charge. Ten of the 12 tribes side with one guy who creates a kingdom in the north, and they choose the city of Samaria to be their capital city, hence the name Samaritans. The other two tribes stay with their guy in Jerusalem in the south. Anyone know what two tribes those are? Judah and Benjamin. And Judah is much bigger than Benjamin, so the southern kingdom is just simply called Judah, Jerusalem being their capital, the people of Judah just simply being called Jews. And the Jews did not like their Samaritan cousins because, well, they moved away, and they were very bad, so they didn't like them. How can I explain this? If you are a Cleveland Browns fan... The Samaritans are like the Baltimore Ravens. They're like half-breed cousins that you just don't like. And the Jews look at the Samaritans as these traitors. They've turned their back on Yahweh. You see, what happened is in the northern kingdom, they were very bad. Lots of very bad kings, and God sends judgment against them. Eventually, they all get wiped out by a big country, scary people called the Assyrians. And the people of Israel in the north, the ten tribes in the north, they begin to intermarry with these Assyrians. But worse than that, they begin to adopt the Assyrian gods, demon gods, in their worship to Yahweh and blend these things together. And so you can see those in the south, the Jews in the south, looking north and saying, you guys got it all wrong. And so they did not like one another. When these Samaritans hear of the Jewish Messiah whose face is set to Jerusalem, of course they reject him. And when two Jewish boys named James and John hear of these Samaritans rejecting the Jewish Messiah, of course they call for fire. James and John, by the way, are the two disciples that Jesus gives the nickname Sons of Thunder. And these boys are calling for the lightning. They're asking for Jesus 
to give them permission for them to do to the Samaritans what the prophet Elijah did to those who opposed him. If you read 2 Kings, you'll read of a time, long time ago before Jesus, of one of the bad kings in the north who didn't like Elijah prophet and he sent a company of soldiers to stop him and Elijah said if I'm God's man then God will just call down fire from heaven and consume them and guess what happened he did and so James and John they just see this scenario playing out in front of them they think well let's just do it again works so well the first time let's do it again you give a boy a hammer everything becomes a nail verse 55 says Jesus turned and he rebuked his boys. Now that word rebuked has only ever been used of Jesus against demons and sickness in some rogue storm. And now he's using it against his own boys. Now I gotta say, I really like James and John. I really like guys like James and John. They're filled with zeal, probably to a fault. Big God theology, big man application. What they got right is that God is the judge. What they got wrong was the timing. You see, fire would come, but it would not fall on those filthy Samaritans. It would fall on God the Son. And so they went on to another village because now is not the time for fire. Now is the time for tears. Here's the point that Luke wants us to see. That following Christ means that we will be rejected. Christian People will reject you. But don't get discouraged about that and don't don't go all John Wick on them. Jesus said this. If they persecuted me, well, they're going to persecute you. In 2 Timothy 3.12, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. That's... Yeah, we talk a lot about promises of God. I don't hear anybody preaching on this is one of the promises of God. All who want to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. It's a promise. Accept it. So, my dear Christian brother and sister, share the good news of Jesus Christ, but just know that not all will receive the good news as good news. Not all will receive you as a good messenger of the good news. And when you are rejected, cling to your Lord and thank God that you have been counted worthy to suffer for his name. Share the gospel with a co-worker. Share the gospel with a family and a friend. But if you are rejected, just move on. Pray. And trust that God's word will accomplish his purpose. Humble yourself. Stow your guns. And follow Jesus on to the next village. Following Christ causes, creates rejection.
I mean, the truth unites. Yes? But the truth also divides. Sometimes it divides families. And it's really painful when that happens. And so, friend, brother, sister, if you have shared the gospel with family members, and it it has put a strain on those relationships, just know that you are in good company. That millions and millions and millions of Christians across this world have suffered the same. Next point. Following Christ creates displacement. Let's pick up reading verse 57. As they were going along the road, someone said to Jesus, I'll follow you wherever you go. Jesus said to him, Foxes have holes, birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. It's a big word, wherever, isn't it? You ever met a a person like this, like this person, a wherever person? You know, they hear about Jesus, they get excited about what they hear about Jesus, and they're just telling everybody, I'll follow Jesus anywhere, wherever he sends me, I will go, really excited. And then six months later, they're in Baton Rouge, shacked up with some girl on drugs. I don't think the Lord means to discourage this unnamed confessor. He's asking this person to consider the cost of their word wherever. Everything in this world has its place. But Jesus said, I'm not of this world. I have no place to lay my head. So you're saying you will follow me wherever. Count the cost. Do the math. Foxes are adapted to their environment and live in dens. Birds of the air have nests. But the Son of Man, which is Jesus' favorite title for himself and speaks to his otherworldliness, the Son of Man is not suited to this world. He doesn't fit in comfortably. And so he's saying, following me means living a rather unsettled, uncomfortable life. You you good with that? Jesus is a homeless man on his way to be misunderstood, misrepresented, rejected, spit upon, beaten, and murdered. You good with that? That's where I'm going. I don't know what kind of life you were hoping for, but that's where I'm going. He set his face to Jerusalem. The Son of Man has no place to lay his head. The Son of Man and those who are with Him are displaced. Kind of like my missionary friend. Where is home? It's not an easy question to answer. Or it shouldn't be. 
Not when you think about it. Piqua, Ohio is where I live. I love this city. I pray often for this city. But Hebrews 13 tells me, here we have no lasting city. We seek the city that is to come. And so in some fundamental sense, we are strangers even in our own homeland. We're pilgrims. We are, to borrow from from Paul, citizens of a different country. And so that means that we won't fit comfortably under any flag, but the flag of the kingdom of God. Our loyalties lie with a different king, from a different kingdom, which puts us into tension with all the kingdoms of this world. Now, of course, we seek the welfare of our city. We work for a stable society, for social justice, for free enterprise. We pray for our country. We pray for our leaders. But let us set our expectations. There is some level of comfort and security that we should not expect from this life. The kingdom of God is here. And it is to come. It is already. And it is not yet. Christians live in the tension of what is and what will be. We trudge through deep snow, waiting for spring to come. Now one day we know, Scripture teaches, that God will wipe away every tear and death will be no more. Pain will cease, but that day is not yet. I officiated more funerals last year than any year in my ministry. And funerals create in us this longing for our true home when the Lord brings heaven to earth and death is no more. So until the Lord carries us to those celestial shores, we we paddle on. We serve and work and suffer and pray and give and endure toil, endure suffering. And we spend ourselves for the gospel's advance. Because what is, isn't what should be and isn't what will be. And so until then, we trudge and trust the Lord's word that spring is coming. Following Christ creates rejection and creates displacement. Next, in verses 59 to 60, we'll see that following Christ creates tension. So let's pick up reading in verse 59. This time, Jesus makes the call. To another, he said, follow me. But the man said, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. And Jesus said to him, leave the dead to bury the dead. But as for you, go and proclaim the kingdom of God. Pay attention to that little word, first, in verse 59. We'll come back to that word. It appears again. So it's Jesus who makes the call this time and says, follow me. It's the same exact 
call he made upon the disciples. In fact, it's the same exact call he's making upon everyone in this room. Follow me. This is what it means to be a Christian. You follow Christ. We follow a person. Not a set of rules. Where he leads, we follow. He goes before, we follow him. He goes with us. I think some people have this idea that the Christian life means <clears throat> that you subscribe to a certain set of beliefs, you live a nice and moral life, and you just sort of do whatever seems right. But in truth, being a Christian means that you follow Christ wherever he goes. It means that he directs the course of our lives. It means that we submit to his mission. We, we take our ambitions and goals and dreams and we submit them to him. His mission supersedes our own. And of course, this creates tension. And perhaps you feel this tension. Well, this fellow sure felt that tension. Notice how he responds. Lord, first, I got something I got to do. Let me go and bury my father. That's a Seems a very reasonable request. So what do you make of Jesus' reply? Nah. Leave the dead to bury their own dead. Not the spiritually dead bury the physically dead, is what he's saying. So is Jesus saying that it's wrong to attend the funeral of a loved one? Is Jesus telling this fellow to break the fifth commandment to honor his father? Probably, the man's father isn't even dead. You see, in first century Palestine, Jews didn't embalm the dead. In a hot climate, bodies needed to be buried rather quickly, within 24 hours. So if this man's father were dead, he probably wouldn't be talking to Jesus. Probably what this man is asking is, my father is elderly. And he will die one day. I'll follow you, but first let me go take care of my affairs at home. And then when all that's squared away, well, then I'll follow you. Dead or not, this man is negotiating the terms of his discipleship. He, he feels the tension of following Jesus. It's just such an exacting command. There's no fine print. It's simply, follow me. There's no joiners at the bottom saying, you know, if this and then this and on these conditions this. and It's just follow me. And he feels that tension and he's trying to relieve that tension. I'll follow Jesus when the timing is right. When I have some things squared away. But this, this is just delayed discipleship. I'll follow you, but first... And so the issue here isn't really about taking care of an aging parent. Taking care of an aging parent is a good thing, a godly thing to do. And I'm, I know the Lord is pleased for those of you who do this. The issue is with that little word first. Because in terms of priority, there's only one thing that's first. We don't get to negotiate the terms of discipleship or the cost. 
nor do we get to add following Jesus to the list of things that we do. No, Christian, following Jesus is the thing we do. Following Jesus is what controls and calibrates all the other things we do. And so none of us can say, I will follow you, Jesus, one day, but first I have some other things I'd like to to do. I'd like to get school done. I'll get serious about Jesus, but I'd like to first get married, have some kids. I'd like to begin serving the church, but first I've got to get my affairs in order. Get that different position at work, get more money in the bank. We don't set the terms and conditions of following Christ. And a man who thinks that he has to do something before he follows Jesus has never actually met Jesus, has no concept of who Jesus truly is and what he has done for sinners like us. Still, the statement is stark. Leave the dead to bury the dead. You go proclaim the kingdom. No one can say something like that. Unless he's God, right? No one has the right to claim allegiance to him is higher than even allegiance to one's own family. Unless that person is God. C.S. Lewis famously wrote about this. This is Lewis. I am trying here to prevent anyone saying the really foolish thing that people often say. I'm ready to accept Christ as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. That is the one thing we must not say. A man who was merely a man and said the sort of things that Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic or else he would be the devil of hell. Either this man was and is the Son of God, or else a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool, you can spit at him and kill him as a demon, or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come up with any patronizing nonsense about him being a great human teacher. He's not left that open to us. He did not intend to. Close quote. By telling this man, let the dead bury the dead, you follow me, the Lord is saying that devotion to him and his kingdom supersedes all responsibilities and all loyalties. And no one can say that but God. Because only God is deserving of that high of a devotion. Only he has the right to demand such things. And because Jesus is God, he can say it, he did say it, and now we have to do something with it. Follow me. And each person here is called to respond to that call in the same way as this man and pay the same price that was demanded of him. Everyone here must put Christ first and everything else under him. That is simply what it means to be a Christian. No one does this perfectly, but no one is allowed to give less. Putting Christ first will create tension on all your other allegiances. 
Like, we love this country. But if our leaders ask us to do something that God has forbidden, or if they forbid us from doing something God has commanded, we must obey God rather than man. We love family. But if keeping family relationships means compromising our loyalty to Christ, we have to break friendship, fellowship. And as I mentioned earlier, this is the sad reality millions of Christians live with even today. So if you're here as a guest and you're not a Christian, this is why you're here. This is why the Lord brought you to church today. Sure, it was your legs which carried you in, but was the Lord's doing? And he wanted you to hear the Lord Jesus call you to follow him. The question that is now put before you is, will you? Friend, will you turn from a life of sin and trust in Jesus Christ and be saved? Will you submit your life to Him? Will you follow Him and go wherever He goes? Will you take up the Bible and begin to calibrate your life and the affections of your heart by the words on these pages? Well, I pray you do. And if you do, it'll be the best decision you'll ever make. It'll be the most rewarding decision you'll ever make. Because through His death and resurrection... The Lord Jesus secured a place for all who repent and believe. He secured a home for all who trust in Him. And so, friend, before you leave here today, tell someone that you'd like to become a Christian. It will help you begin taking steps down that path as a pilgrim like the rest of us. Listen closely now to the final point. Following Christ costs everything. And gains everything. This is verses 61 to 62. And this is where we'll end our time together. Yet another said, I will follow you, Lord. But let me first, there's that word again. Let me first say farewell to those back home. Jesus said to him, no one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. So here we have another confessor looking for terms. I'll follow you. But first, let me first go do this. Let me first go do that. Let me first go say goodbye. Let me first get some things in order. Now, brother and sister, when it comes to obedience, there is no but first. And so Jesus issues this proverb. No one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. What is it with this guy? It's all or nothing. But the image is clear. Try walking in a straight line while looking back over your shoulder. It can't be done. To plow straight lines, your eyes must look straight ahead. So following Jesus must be singular in its focus. So many people who believe themselves to be Christians 
walk with a chin on their shoulder. Their heads turned back, their affections tethered to the things of this world, and their lives drawing these crooked lines off into nowhere. And you look at their lives and you wonder, it's really impossible to know, are you following Jesus or are you following yourself? And the Lord is saying, put your hand to the plow, take on my mission, take on my purpose, but in so doing, you can't keep one foot in the world and one foot in the kingdom. You can't serve two masters. Everything must be leveraged and singularly focused on this. During World War II, Americans were called upon to ration goods like fuel and coal and sugar and coffee and meats, even shoes. Entire factories were converted to serve the war effort. Every American was affected in some way by the war. The war mattered to every single person because lives were at stake. It was even more true in the kingdom. Every Christian has the privilege to ration their lives to the advance of the gospel in the earth. Following Christ means taking the plow, keeping your eyes facing forward, and giving everything to this purpose. It means living simply and giving generously for the spiritual well-being of others. Every week in my prayer list, I pray that God would enable our church to live simply and give generously. And I mean money, but I mean time, and I mean talents. I mean everything that God has equipped you for and with that we would live under our means in terms of time, in terms of commitments, in terms of finances, so that we would ration and leverage everything to the kingdom of God for the advance of the gospel to the ends of the earth. The mission of God is to bring glory to Himself in the saving of sinners from every tribe, language, and people, and nation. So no matter who you are as a Christian, no matter what season of life you are in, you have a place on this plow to take on the mission of the Messiah to advance the gospel to the ends of the earth. Following Christ means then that we run all our decisions through the grid of how each decision might affect our ability to participate in that mission. Will the advance of the gospel through my life be served or will it be hindered by this decision? Will taking this job prevent me from serving my church? Will buying this house make my participation in discipleship easier or will it make it more difficult? Will signing my kids up for that sport or that event keep us from worship on the Lord's Day? Will adding this expense to my life prevent me from giving to missions or prevent me from saving to adopt? You see how there's this grid that we all have to run everything through because we have our hand on the plow. We have accepted the mission of the Messiah. That's where He's going and we're following Him. So it may mean turning down a promotion at work. 
because you need to spend more time with that new Christian. This isn't radical. This is just Christian life. There's no but first. Jesus is clear. Brother, sister, if you look back, you're not fit for the kingdom of heaven. Following Jesus cost everything. I hope you're feeling the I hope you're feeling the weight of this. Who in this room can say, I've never looked back? For me, when I said, yes, Jesus saved me, it's all 100% in the same direction. I've never been distracted by any other thing. I've never given over to something that would hinder my ability to advance the gospel through my life. There's not a person in this room can say that. Certainly not me. So where does that leave us? I'll tell you where it leaves us. It leaves us where Jesus said we would be, unfit, unfit for the kingdom of heaven. But remember how this passage started. Our Savior, our representative, the last Adam, set his face. He did not waver because he knew you would. He didn't look back because he knew you would. Jesus did what we didn't. He kept his hand to the plow all the way to the cross. And on that cross... He stood in the place of every Christian whose chin seems to be tethered to their shoulder. He's the one who kept the wherever promise to his father. He made no terms or conditions. He plowed the field we could not plow. And in so doing, he earned us the righteousness of God. He earned us the acceptance with God. He secured our place in his eternal kingdom. He granted us peace that relieves the tension. He gave everything, and to us, he gave everything. So following Christ costs you everything. That is true. But following Christ gains you everything. Everything that is even more true. There is suffering, but in Him there is sweetness. There is hardship, but in Him there is joy. In Him is where we find home. In Him we reach our destination. And so follow Jesus, pilgrim. Keep your eyes on Him. And remember, no eye has seen. No ear has heard. It's not even entered the heart of man what God has prepared for those who love him. Follow Jesus. Even though it costs everything, he's worth it. Let's pray. Father, we confess to looking back. We admit that we have put terms and conditions on obedience. We have failed to trust you through hardship, difficulty, suffering, loss, pain, 
you please forgive us? Lord, we admit that we've even failed to trust you and follow you through the time when you blessed us. When you give us more than we need, the last thing on our mind is how can this serve the advance of the gospel? The top of mind is how I can spend this on something I want. Lord, would you please reveal Jesus to us this morning. Let us see his beauty and his majesty and his worth. By seeing him, give us grace to follow him. Give us your Holy Spirit to know him, to put him first, and to submit everything to him. Amen. Please stand to your feet for the assurance of pardon. At the end of our services here, we take a moment and we read a passage of Scripture that offers us an assurance that when we have trusted in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of our sins, God has pardoned our sins. And so we hear this from Isaiah chapter 55 this morning, verse 6 and 7. Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord. And here's the promise, that God may have compassion on him and to our God, for he will abundantly pardon.